0: You're listening to a sermon from Providence Baptist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. For more information about our church, please visit church-kc.com or come and visit on a Sunday morning. Sunday School for All Ages starts at 9 a.m. and our worship begins at 1015. Thanks for listening. Thank you, team, and good morning Uh, once again. So glad to see you all. I invite you to join me in your Bibles in jonah chapter one we're going to pick up the story in verse four and we're going to read on down to verse 16 so verse 17 really in my very humble opinion belongs in chapter two but that's neither here nor there so we're going to go down to verse 16 today beginning in verse four the title of the message is the storm you know growing up on the coast of north carolina Uh, I had the occasion to do a little bit of sailing, and on one occasion I went on an overnight sailing adventure, I will call it, uh, over through the Albemarle Sound in eastern North Carolina, and uh, I had the occasion to encounter a pretty severe storm. As far as storms go, it really wasn't all that bad, but it sure did frighten me, all right? It wasn't a good time uh, for me on board that ship, but that storm that I encountered that night on that sailboat really that storm pales in comparison to the storm that Jonah and his shipmates are going to encounter here in the rest of chapter 1, or almost the rest of chapter 1. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to follow along with me as I read. The Bible says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they, they could not for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And all God's people said, Father, thank you for your precious word and the opportunity that I have to stand here and and to preach from it and to preach to your people. What a great privilege that is. Help me never to lose sight of that. Help us collectively never to lose sight of uh, the great privilege we have to hear uh, Your Word and to hear You speak to us. As we go through this message this morning, as I stand here to preach, I pray that You would uh, uphold me with Your righteous right arm, that You would speak through me, that You would allow me to do this in the power of Your Spirit and not in any perceived strength or ability uh, of my own. But most importantly, Lord, I pray that uh, as we encounter You in Your Word today, that we would be challenged in areas where we need to be challenged and that we would be strengthened and comforted and encouraged in areas where we need to be strengthened and encouraged. May you be glorified through the preaching of your word today. These things I ask in the precious name of Jesus, amen. Well, back in December, I don't know if you remember this or not, while I was preaching the story of David and Goliath, and I I used Mike Tyson as an illustration in that sermon. And I'm going to use Mike Tyson as an illustration in just a moment, but before I do that, I just want you to know I really don't, I'm not a big fan of Mike Tyson, but as I was preparing this week, this quote of Mike Tyson kept coming to my mind. It just kept coming up, coming up, coming up, finally I said, okay, Lord, you want this in the sermon, I'll put it in the sermon. I don't really know if it was the Lord's prompting or not, but as I was preparing, this quote of his just kept coming. To my mind. And so, Mike Tyson, for those of you who do not know, he was once the undisputed, undefeated heavyweight champion of the world. In my view, he's one of the greatest heavyweight uh, champion boxers of all time. And somewhere near the height of his career, Mike Tyson is preparing for a big fight and he's taking questions from someone in the press. And the, the interviewer is asking him specifically about his opponent. And his opponent's plans, hey Mike, tell me, you know, how are you going to counter your opponent's plans in this fight? And Mike Tyson gave what has since become one of the most famous statements of all time, at least from a boxing perspective. Mike Tyson said in response to that question, and I quote, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Well, Preacher, I can't believe you just shared that in a sermon. But my point is, if we had the prophet Jonah up here on this stage this morning and we asked him about his experience here in Jonah chapter 1, I think he would give that statement a hearty amen. Think about it. The last time we saw Jonah, he had hatched a plan to renounce his prophetic office. God had called him to go to Nineveh and call the people of Nineveh to repent. He said, Jonah, I want you to go there and I want you to preach to them. Give them the message, right? They have a choice. They can face divine judgment or they can repent and they can receive my grace. They can receive my mercy. And so God called him to do that. But we saw last week that Jonah was not willing to do it. Why? We discovered from what Jonah says in Jonah chapter four, that he knew that God was a gracious and merciful God. And Jonah could not stand the thought of God's mercy extending to the Ninevites, who just happened to be the enemies of Jonah and the enemies of Jonah's people. There's a statement that I intended to make last week, but I didn't, so I'm going to take this opportunity to say it now. Jonah's patriotism, his love for his country got in the way of his service to God. And I just want to make sure that you are clear this morning. I love my country. I'm one of the most patriotic people you will ever meet. But I hide it pretty deep underneath my skin because first and foremost, my duty is to God. The Bible says that I am a citizen of heaven. Any believer in Jesus Christ, our first citizenship is first and foremost in heaven. And so we want to make sure that we we never do or make the mistake that Jonah makes here. We must not allow our patriotism our love for country, get in the way of our service to God. So God had called Jonah. He said, I want you to go to Nineveh. Jonah wouldn't do it. He couldn't stand the thought of his enemies receiving God's grace. He said, I'm not going to do it. And so he devised a plan. He said, I- I'll escape. I'll go in the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. I'll go to Tarshish, believing that he could just renounce his prophetic duties and his prophetic office without any consequences, that's what he believed. But as Mike Tyson famously said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And metaphorically speaking, church, that's exactly what is about to happen to Jonah. In verse 4, I want you to notice what the Bible says. The Bible says, but the Lord. Jonah had a plan. The Lord's not going to let that plan come to fruition, but the Lord, and there's the word Lord, all caps, by way of reminder, whenever you see Lord, all caps in the Old Testament, you need to immediately think of Yahweh, you need to think of the great I am, you need to remember that Jesus in his life and in his ministry also claimed to be this God, he claimed to be Yahweh, he claimed to be the great I am, and so you need to think of these things, and so we read, but the Lord hurled, If you like to mark your Bibles, there's a word to mark because it is repeated several times throughout this text. Think of Nolan Ryan. You remember Nolan Ryan? Another sports analogy. Nolan Ryan was one of the the greatest pitchers of all time. And he had one of the greatest fastballs of all time. And he could throw that thing not only hard, but he could throw it with great precision. And so imagine Nolan Ryan reaching back and hurling a fastball on the corner of the plate exactly where he wants it. That's the idea here. God is reaching back and he's going to hurl, not a fastball rather, but the Bible says a great wind. And literally it says great gale upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened To break up here's what you need to know i think about verse four the author here is trying to communicate something about the severity severity of this storm that yahweh has hurled in the direction of jonah in fact we miss it in our english translations but in the hebrew text the author actually personifies the ship what do you mean by that like you know the the ship now is is talking like a a human being and, and the sense is that the ship says hey this storm is so bad like, I'm about to break up itself. So suffice it to say, this is no ordinary gale. And this is further illustrated by the reaction of the sailors in verse 5. The Bible says, Then the mariners were afraid. Again, if you're one who likes to mark your Bible, underline that word. Because this is another word that is repeated throughout this text. It's an important one. They feared, right? Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled. Repetition. The author of Jonah loves repetition. The very same word as before. Yahweh hurled the storm upon the sea. Now the mariners on board the ship, they are hurling something. What are they hurling? And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. This is pure pandemonium. This is chaos. There's a lot of fear going on in this moment. The sailors are crying out to their their gods. More on that in just a minute. They're running back and forth from the the deck down below to the cargo hold. They're grabbing the cargo. They're they're throwing it back up deckside or taking it back up deckside and throwing it overboard in in the hopes of preventing the ship from actually sinking and and cracking up as the ship was saying. So it's pure pandemonium. There's a lot of panic, a lot of fear. That's going on here, and these guys are, well, they're sailors. They should be used to this kind of thing. H- how many of you have ever watched Deadliest Catch? I love Deadliest Catch. There was a time if you're looking for, I should not tell you about binge-worthy shows, but this is this is one. There was a time when I would just stop doing whatever was going on, and I would stop, and I would watch the Deadliest Catch. Absolutely love. I'm not really sure why I liked it so much, but I think one of the things that really grabbed my attention was to sit there and watch the men and sometimes women on board these crab vessels that are crabbing in the Bering Sea in Alaska in January, in February. This is one of the most inhospitable places on earth any time of year but it's probably at its most violent in January and February and these men and women these crew members they're working in many cases through these violent Storms, 20, 30, 40, 50 mile an hour winds, 20, 30 foot seas. Sometimes it's cold enough to be snowing out here in the middle of the ocean and they're working through it all. Sometimes my favorite part of the show is when the captain is up there and he gets on the radio and he says, you guys hold on, we're gonna take one over the bow and this big 20 foot, 30 foot wave crashes over the bow or crashes over the side rails of the ship and sometimes some of those crew members, they go, sliding all over the deck. But here's the thing. Put yourself in that situation. Now, how scared would you be land lubber from Missouri? You'd be pretty doggone scared. Trust me. I grew up on the ocean. I would be deathly afraid. But these guys, through all of that, they seem totally unfazed by some of the severest storms on this earth and i think that's the point that the author is trying to make typically when these guys encounter storms like this they would be unfazed and so that tells us something about the severity severity of this storm this is no ordinary storm this is the storm of the century or perhaps we could say the storm of the millennium and it's not an accident listen church Because we know that God has hurled this storm upon the sea, we can say with certainty that these sailors have sailed into the center of God's wrath, and they are rightly struck with fear because of it. So much fear, in fact, that each one, the Bible says, cries out to his own God. That means they decided to pray there's no atheist in foxholes right for some of you you're familiar with that statement and so this verse here tells us something a little uh, about the crew they're, they're actually not atheists, right in the purest sense of the of the word uh, these men are comprised of they come from different nations different religions and apparently they worship different deities pagan deities and so this storm is so severe now that they see no choice but to cry out for divine mercy By the way, church, here's just a reminder, and we'll come back to this again in a few moments, but whatever you call on in your time of need, that is your God. Whatever or whoever it is that you call on in your time of need, that is your God. And I I point that out, church, because sometimes if we are not careful, we can call on a God, right, with a lowercase g, who is not the one true God in our time of need. So, make sure that in your time of need that you are calling out to Yahweh, to the Lord God, the one true God of this universe. Because as this story will illustrate, to call out to any other God, lowercase g, is absolutely futile. Now, one question we should ask at this moment is this. These men, we have just said, are caught up In God's wrath are these men innocent bystanders who just happen to be caught up in God's wrath by accident are we to view these men as we are to view Bo and Luke Duke they're just a, a couple of good old boys never meaning no harm Come on, preacher, leave them alone. They they didn't really mean, they're really not all that bad. You know, yeah, they're running moonshine for Uncle Jesse, but it's really not all that bad compared to other people. They haven't really killed anybody. Certainly, they're not deserving of God's wrath. Are we supposed to see these men through that prism? I don't believe so. Not at all. These men are pagan idolaters. The author of Jonah just told us that which means these men have rebelled against Yahweh, just as Jonah has rebelled against Yahweh. The rebellion against Yahweh may look a little different, but it is rebellion nonetheless. And here's the thing, they are therefore likewise deserving of Yahweh's wrath, just as Jonah is deserving of Yahweh's wrath. And as far as I am concerned, I believe the truth of the matter is on the authority of God's word, that we are all deserving of God's wrath. And I know the modern mind, the modern man and woman, we don't like to hear that. We like to think of ourselves maybe perhaps as Bo and Luke Duke or, or someone even better perhaps. We like to think of ourselves as Mother Teresa. I really don't deserve God's wrath. I'm really, really not all that bad. But the Bible paints a completely different picture of humanity and all of humanity the apostle paul makes this strong argument for this in the first three chapters of the book of romans he begins in romans chapter 1 verse 18 by saying for the wrath of god there it is the wrath of god is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and a lot of times we church going folks we might read verse 18 of romans chapter 1 and we go yeah paul get him." Get those unrighteous people, you know, let them, let them have it. Let them know that God's wrath is being revealed against them. But what we fail to understand sometimes when we read that is Paul is in the process of condemning everybody under the wrath of God. No one is off the hook. He says in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 12, none is righteous. He's quoting the Old Testament. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And then he sums it all up in chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the case, like a lawyer that Paul is building there, is that that we are all deserving of God's wrath whether you want to believe it or not whether you want to hear that or not it doesn't really matter that's what paul says that's what god's word says in our natural state we are no different than the sailors on board the ship we are no different than Jonah we are all in rebellion against god and deserving of his wrath that's the bad news but the bible never never just leaves us hanging with bad news. The Bible then gives us the good news. And Paul follows up that bad news immediately with the good news. And the good news is this, Romans chapter 3, verse 24. After he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he says, and are justified. Remember that word justified? We looked at this word when, when I first got here and we studied Galatians together. And that word justified, it, it typically means being acquitted of the charges brought against you of being found not guilty in a court of law. It's a judicial term. And so Paul says, and are justified, found not guilty, even though in fact we are guilty, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Now, propitiation is a really, really, really big word. That is a $5 word that has no 50 cent replacement. If you're familiar with Mark Twain, I think it was Mark Twain who said, when you're writing, right, if a 50 cent word will do, don't waste a $5 word. There's no 50 cent word that can replace this $5 word propitiation. It's a very important word. This word, propitiation, it carries the idea of having the wrath of God appeased. It carries the idea of pacifying the wrath of God. And so Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed against all mankind. But there's a way to have the wrath of God appeased. It's through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so when you trust and believe in Jesus believing that his death on the cross was a, a sacrifice of propitiation to appease the wrath of God upon you, then that's exactly what God does. God pardons us of our sin. He grants us everlasting life. And the storm of God's wrath no longer abides upon us. That's what Jesus Christ has done for us in our place. We are not innocent bystanders. These men on board this ship are not innocent bystanders. They are just as deserving of God's wrath as is Jonah. And oh, by the way, where is Jonah? Well, the author now returns to him at the end of verse 5. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. This is a sweet sleep this is a deep sleep. He is sleeping like a baby, like maybe Kai is over there. I don't know. I usually put that young boy to sleep when he comes in here on Sunday mornings. The, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, the Septuagint, the, the translators, that I believe they were Hebrew scholars, if memory serves correctly. When they translated Jonah from Hebrew into Greek, they actually inserted an editorial comment at this point. Right? They said, and I quote, that Jonah is snoring. That's how sound asleep he is. He's sleeping like a baby, sleeps through the most violent thunderstorm that you can think of it's really hard to imagine how this is happening with all of the commotion that's going on around him the the sailors are going down into the cargo hold that's probably where jonah is they're grabbing the cargo they're throwing it overboard they're calling out they're praying to their different gods i mean it's just pure pandemonium there's a lot of noise and there he is reminds me of my father-in-law I love my father-in-law. He's a great guy. And my father-in-law has the superpower. You know what it is? He can fall asleep anywhere and in any position. I'm, I'm convinced he can fall asleep standing up. I haven't seen that one yet. But it's great. We'll, we'll go over to you know spend some time with my father-in-law and we'll be there over the holidays or whatever and we'll be watching TV and the kids are all running around. Somebody's playing a game. There's just a lot of noise and there's a lot of commotion. And invariably, all of a sudden, I'll hear Lonnie over there like this and he's sitting upright in the chair but he doesn't have a care in the world. That's exactly how the author is describing Jonah. But then he is rudely awakened in verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, O sleeper? How in the world can you sleep at a time like this? Now at this moment in time, I need to take a time out because I would be remiss if I did not share with you at this moment or point out to you at this moment the similarities between Jonah And the crew on board this ship. And Jesus and his disciples, when they were on board a ship. Most of you, I'm sure, are familiar with this story. This story is so important in the New Testament that it is found in all three synoptic gospels. I'm not sure if it's in John or not, but I know for sure it's in all three synoptic gospels. And the story is, Jesus and his disciples, they get on a boat to sail to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And what does Jesus do? (laughs) He goes to sleep. Mark's Gospel in Mark chapter 4 actually tells us this little detail that Jesus is asleep with His head on a pillow. Maybe it was a life jacket. I don't know. But He's comfortably asleep. And then all of a sudden, this severe storm comes down upon them while they're going across the Sea of Galilee. And guess what happens? The disciples begin to freak out. They are afraid. Now remember, some of these disciples are professional fishermen. They've lived their entire lives on the Sea of Galilee. They've encountered storms before. And so typically they would be unfazed, but that's not the description that we have. As the storm rages, these men are very, very afraid for their lives. And then they look back in the back of the boat and what do they see? They see Jesus sleeping there. And they go to Him and they go, Jesus! Wake up! Don't you know we're dying? Don't you know we're perishing? How in the world can you sleep at a time like this? You do see the similarities between the two stories, don't you? They're probably intentional. More on that a little bit later. Intentional from Jesus' point of view because He's going to teach His disciples something very important. But the differences between Jonah... And Jesus are just as striking as the similarities. Jonah, of course, is running from God's will. He's running from his prophetic duties and his prophetic office. But when Jesus falls asleep in the back of the boat, it's the exact opposite. He's not running from God's will. He's not renouncing his prophetic office. No, he delighted in God's will. A will that would take him to the cross. Listen to it, church where he himself would appease the storm of God's wrath. More on that a little bit later. Their story continues at the end of verse 6. The captain says, Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. If you did not know already, you need to know this. The book of Jonah is a literary masterpiece. The author of Jonah writes with a lot of irony. And this section right here is drooling with irony. Every single word that the captain speaks to this wayward prophet is mocking this prophet who is on the run. Notice how the captain's words match exactly the first and last of Yahweh's commands to Jonah. Yahweh came to Jonah and said, Arise, go to Nineveh and call out against it. The captain says to Jonah when he finally wakes up, he says, Arise! Arise! Call out to your God. This is also ironic because Jonah wants nothing to do with his God, right? He's, pronounced, he's renounced his prophetic office. He's trying to run away from God as far as he can go. But of course, the captain doesn't know who Jonah is. He doesn't know anything about Jonah. He doesn't know anything about Jonah's God. But his remarks here, beloved, hint at the hope that Jonah's God will have mercy on on them. And here, I believe, is the irony of all ironies because Jonah knows full well that his God is a God full of mercy and full of grace. Yet, what does he do in this moment? Jonah refuses to call out to Yahweh. Let me paint the picture this way. Here's a ship full of people who are dying. They are crying out for divine mercy. They are crying out to gods who Jonah knows do not exist. And the one man who can lead them to the one true God refuses to call out to his God on their behalf. The author of Jonah is, I believe, passing judgment on Jonah at this moment. He is condemning him. But before we do that ourselves, let us just take a moment, church, to examine our own lives. I believe we should all ask, myself included, is there some of Jonah in me? And by that I mean, are we asleep at the bottom of the ship while our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our relatives are crying out all around us to gods that could never even possibly save them? Think about that for just a moment. Like Jonah, are are we unwilling to even call out to God on their behalf? I mean, he's not even willing to pray at this moment. I don't care who you are, right? We can all pray. Granted, not all of us are, are gifted with the gift of evangelism. Yes, not all of us are going to be the next Billy Graham, the next D.L. Moody, or whoever you want to insert there. I, I, I get it, but we can all pray, can't we? Yes, we can. Say amen, preacher. We can. We, we have a great privilege from God, actually, to pray. What a wonderful privilege. That is. And so there's really no excuse for Jonah in this moment not to call out to his God. There really isn't. And there's no excuse for us not to pray. So let me me just challenge you in this way before I move on. If you're not already doing this, think about doing this. Pray for the lost. Go home and make a list of people who you know in your circle of influence. This very day who are crying out to God's that could never possibly save them. Co-workers, friends, students, what have you, neighbors, relatives, make this list, write down their names, and just commit to praying for them. At the bare minimum, we can do that. Pray that God would would get a hold of these people, that He would enlighten them and open their eyes to the truth of, of who He is. And then also pray for divine encounters. Pray that God would give you boldness, to speak into these people's lives. I know that's a really scary, scary, scary thought. But pray that God would open up doors and opportunities for you to share the great love of this great God who we are talking about this morning. So let me just challenge you at the the very least, we can always, always, always pray. Jonah fails to do that at the end of verse 6. But then the narrative takes a turn in verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. This seems strange to us people today, casting lots, what in the world is all of that about? I certainly, I would say, as a pastor standing on this side of Calvary or on this side of Acts chapter 1, wherever it was the last place lots was used in the Bible, I would say to us today that casting lots is not something that we as God's people should do now. But we should understand that God's people in the Old Testament did it quite a bit, and they would use this as a way of determining God's sovereign will. So Proverbs 16.33 actually says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So what is this all about? It's very similar to rolling dice. They would take two stones and they would put a, a light color uh, and a dark color on each stone and then they would, they would go around and they would roll the dice in front of each person. Okay, And then if two light colored stones would, would roll up, think of snake eyes in front of somebody, then the lot was cast on that person. And so that's what they did here. And when the lot is cast in Jonah's direction, he is discovered as the guilty party. And he's immediately placed on trial, verse 8. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Uh, well, and, and where do you come from? What, what is your country? And, and of what people are you? They're interrogating him. They want as much information from him as they can get. Now, look at what he says in verse 9. Verse 9 is a very important verse. Here's something else for you to mark. Jonah declares, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. Now, for us reading the story, we read that, we go, ha-ha, funny joke. You don't really fear the Lord. But he's telling them something very important about himself. I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea in the dry land, which is another way of saying the God who created everything. Now, I believe, and not everyone agrees, but I believe this statement actually reflects a change in Jonah. Even if it's a temporary change, it's a change nonetheless. And here's what I mean by that. He's been caught red-handed. He can't avoid it anymore, so he comes clean, as it were. And he makes it clear to these men that his God is, in fact, responsible for the storm. And furthermore, he makes it clear that his God is not just one of many other gods. Look in the Bible and see how he says that. This is exactly what he says. This is my God, and my God is not just one of many gods. My God is the one true God, Jonah declares. Now, here's why this is important. Some of these sailors, if they're Phoenician, and they probably are, they would have worshipped a God named Baal Shemim, which means Lord of heaven. And you'll notice what Jonah says there. He says, and I fear the Lord, the God of Heaven." And so to Jonah's credit now in verse 9, he wants these men to know that he is a Hebrew whose God is Yahweh, the one true God. Now notice how these men react in verse 10. Then these men were exceedingly afraid. There's the second time now we've been told about the fear of these men. First, they were struck with fear when the storm struck. Now they're struck with fear when they learn about Jonah, where he's from, and what he has Done. In fact, you all want to read in verse ten, and said to him, "What is this that you have done, you fool? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them." Well, wait a minute. When did he tell them? Go back to verse nine. That's when he told them. He told them who he was, where he was from, who his God was, and it seems as though he also filled in all of the blanks. He let them know. All of the events that transpired that led up to this. Yeah, I, I'm a prophet of God of Yahweh. He called me to go to Nineveh. I said, No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going go to Tarsus, and so I boarded this ship. And now this great storm is here because I'm running from God. He's told them all of that. Now, verse 11. Then they said to him, "Well, what shall we do to you?" that the sea may quiet down for us, for the sea grew more and more and more tempestuous. Okay, you are a prophet of Yahweh. Tell us then, Mr. Prophet of Yahweh, what should we do now? And, Yah- and not Yahweh, Jonah tells them. Verse 12, pick me up, hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Do you see what Jonah's doing here? If not, I'll try to point it out. I want you to notice how Jonah admits his guilt. He really does. He admits his guilt. And and he knows that if he is given over to the sea, that the storm will cease. And so in some way and in some sense, Jonah here is offering to die as a sacrifice in the place of these men that will appease the wrath of God. Now, it is not clear in regards to Jonah's motives here. And scholars are deeply, deeply divided on this issue. They ask the question, is this an heroic act on Jonah's part to save the lives of these pagan sailors? It's possible. Or is it another self-serving attempt on Jonah's part to thwart God's plan? The sense being that Jonah would rather die under the wrath of God than to do God's will. And Jonah certainly is that way at the end of the book, but there's no indication at this moment that this is his state of, of mind. And so the truth is we really, really don't know because the author doesn't tell us personally, and you don't have to agree with me. I think Jonah here is actually exhibiting signs of repentance. I, I really do. Yep, I'm guilty. That's who I am. I deserve God's wrath. I deserve my, my just deserts. Just throw me overboard and let me get what I Deserve, deserve, and God's wrath will be appeased. So that's what he tells them to do. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Furiously, they tried to go back to land. They go, like, no, we don't want to throw this guy overboard. We don't want to be guilty of this man's murder. And so they try to do everything they can to get out of doing what the prophet of Yahweh just told them to do. Verse 14, Therefore, they called out to who, church? Say it with me. Who did they call out to? The Lord. The Lord, all caps, Yahweh. Earlier, they had called out to their God or gods, lowercase g, to no avail. But now they call out to the Lord, Yahweh. O Lord, O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, O Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. They're about to murder a man, (laughs) and so they plead for mercy from Yahweh. We just want to make sure, right, your prophet has told us to do this, but we want to make sure that you're not going to hold us accountable for this man's life. Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah, and look at what they did. They hurled him into the sea. Same word that we've seen already. Yahweh hurled a storm on the sea. The crew members hurled the cargo back into the sea. And now we read that they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging, just as Jonah said that it would, because Jonah is a prophet of God. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord And they made vows. I just want to point out this is the third time in the text now that fear is ascribed to the pagan crew. First they were struck with fear when they when they heard when the storm struck. Then they were struck with fear when they heard who Jonah was and and what he was doing. But now they they fear Yahweh. Reverent fear church with great fear, and they begin to worship him. How beautiful that is. These men now recognize that Yahweh is the one true God. That He is the all-powerful Creator God who has sovereign power over all of creation. These men now know this. At the beginning of the story, they didn't know that. They were calling out, to pagan idols, worthless gods. Now they know that Yahweh is the one God who is worthy of worship. He is the one to turn to in times of trouble. Somebody say amen. Remember Jesus and the disciples in the boat? When the disciples were were fearing for their lives and they, they went to Jesus and said, Jesus, don't you care that we're dying? Get up and do something. Well, he did. He got up and he commanded the storm to stop. And the storm stopped. And we read in Mark chapter 4, verse 41, And they, the disciples, were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And of course, it's a rhetorical The answer should be obvious. He's the same God who hurled the storm upon the sea in Jonah chapter 1. He's the same God who calmed the storm and the sea in Jonah chapter 1. He is the same God to whom these pagan sailors worshipped and made sacrifices to and made vows to in Jonah 1. It's the very same God because He is the only God. God. He is the one true God. And all other gods are useless idols. All other gods will fail you in your time of need, but not this God. Somebody say, Amen. What if I told you that that was actually the entire point of everything that I just told you? You'd be like, well, you had to take 40 minutes to do that? But then you wouldn't have had all that other information. I actually think that's the whole point of this story. Why would you say that, preacher? Because remember, the people of Israel, as we read last week, they're evil in the eyes of God too, just as the people of Nineveh. Why? Because they are guilty of idol worship. We talked about that a few weeks ago as well in the run-up to Christmas. That's what these guys are doing. They are turning to worthless idols in their time of need and not the one true God. They need to learn the same lesson that these pagan sailors on board this ship need to learn. And sometimes, church, we need to learn the same lesson as well. He is the one true God. All other gods are useless idols. All other gods will fail you in your time of need, but not this God. And beloved, this God met your greatest need when he flung himself on the cross of Calvary as a propitiation in your place to appease the wrath of God on your behalf and my behalf. And when he did that, and when you trust and believe in him, the storm of God's wrath is no longer upon you. To God, be the glory this morning. Father, thank you for the great privilege that I've had to stand here and to preach your word this morning. Thank you for your great love. Thank you for your great mercy that you've showered upon me in my life. Oh yes, there was a time when I was crying out to gods with little g's. Only to discover that they are no help in times of trouble, no help in my time of need. I thank you, Lord, that that I eventually found you, the one true God, and discovered peace, peace with God. I pray for my hearers this morning, both in this place and out there on the internet. If there's anyone out there who's never experienced this grace, the grace of your grace, your great love, your great mercy. Maybe they're experiencing your wrath at this moment. Maybe they're in just uh, a storm in their life that they just wish would cease. Maybe they've been calling out to little gods with little Gs. I pray that at this very moment they would recognize that you are the one true God and that you are the only one who can help them time of need i pray these things in jesus wonderful and precious name amen i invite you to stand church we're going to sing one more song and it is a time of invitation i always want to give the opportunity for people to respond and so if you want to respond now and you want to do it publicly i would certainly encourage you to do that you can respond where you are if you want to speak with me later you can do that as well But if the Lord is speaking to you through the preaching of his word this morning, then make sure that you respond. For someone, it may be you need to respond and to receive God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. If that's you this morning, if you've never done that, I would just just encourage you and just let you know that is the greatest thing that you could ever do in your life. I'm a living example of that. Don't let another day go by without trusting and believing in Jesus Christ. But if you have made that decision, if you are a bloodbought follower of Jesus Christ here this morning, then your response might be this. Make sure that you worship the Lord as these guys are doing here at the end of this story, that you are making vows to the Lord that you would serve him with joy and thankfulness, and that you would commit your life to making disciples, to fulfill the commission and the mission that God has given his people today. I would encourage you to respond, whatever is on your heart.